0: There we go. Okay. So, somebody asked a question last week about what is the purpose of all this stuff. We sit, we watch our breath, um, we read the sutras, we go to Dharma talks, and, and what's, what's it all about? Well, in the end, it's only about one thing, and that is nirvana. That everything we do as a Buddhist even even becoming a Buddhist, is designed to wake us up to the fact that nirvana is already there. And we just need to be aware of it. We need to change our mind enough to be conscious of that fact. And because it's the Vesak, the Buddhist birthday in May, all the other monks are celebrating Vesak. They're out there and they're Doing what monks do during Vesak, a lot of it is eating, which is not a bad idea. <laughs> and and uh, so they're not going to be here as much this month as they normally would be. It's just uh, the duty of a monk in May. But Nam and I are here today, and we are going to carry on the tradition of Sunday service. So when I became a Buddhist, I I took uh, the five precepts. Now the five precepts are like really important, even more important than meditation, because it's being a good person on the outside. And so we take the five precepts and we're we're going to try to kill less and steal less, consume intoxicants less, etc., etc. So on the outside, we're a better person and cause less suffering to others, and of course cause less suffering to ourself. But we need to change the inside too and that's where meditation really comes in and that allows us to, to be something different than we have been. To, to transcend the limitation of ego and to become everything and nothing at exactly the same time, which is very Zen-like. So when I came to meditation and Buddhism, it was 1979, and and I walked through that door right there, and it was a cold, rainy Wednesday night, and I I came for instruction to learn how to meditate, because I'd been studying a little bit of Buddhism, and I looked this place up in the phone book, and it was in the yellow pages, and so I thought to myself, okay, now I'm going to really figure what meditation is. So there was a a 10-minute orientation, and they said, watch your breath. Count from 1 to 10 to 10 to 1, 1 to 10 and 10 to 1. And we have three 20-minute periods of meditation, 1 to 10 and 10 to 1. And then Shinzen, the vice abbot, will come, and he'll give a Dharma talk. And so at that time, Shinzen lived in this building. Uh, And and, uh, I had never met him before or even heard of him before. But one of the interesting things about that experience was uh, English was his first language, and it's my only language. And I was able to, to hear stuff because of the language that I didn't really understand fully. It was subtle, and it was almost transcendent sometimes but because he understood what i was asking he could give me a really good answer that i didn't understand but i figured in time i would all i needed to do was meditate and then i'd understand everything he was telling me on that evening so i listened intently after suffering through 3 20-minute periods of meditation and and he got me hooked cuz i really wanted to see the world the way he did and understand what he understood about his experience in the world and his relationship to the world. So I continued to come back and suffer through meditation, but could hardly wait for every Dharma talk. And he's still giving really good Dharma talks, even today, after all these years. So um, I watched my breath. And I did that for two years, breath counting. One to ten, ten to one, one to ten, ten to one. And, and it worked well for two years. It really was just everything I wanted it to be. And I finally got pretty good and could actually go up to 10 and down to 1 more often than not. So I was making progress in my focus and my understanding of what meditation is. And then it expanded dramatically when I found this book called the Vasudi Maga, The Path of Purification, Buddha Gosha, 5th Century Monk. It's a meditation manual, that's 900 pages long, which is available for free download on my website. And I started to read it, and wow, meditation and breath counting is like one small aspect of meditation, and and I became aware of something called the jhanas, J-H-A-N-A-S, and the jhanas were all about going into deep states of concentration, so deep that all your sense doors would close, and you'd have a completely internal reality. That was right in your face, but actually was right behind your face. So I could I could hardly wait to get there because it was all about bliss and happiness, and and everything would be blocked out, and you just be inside, and you just have all these wonderful feelings and surges of energy and light and motion. And I said, that's what I want. I'm getting tired of just counting to 10. I want something that's substantial and really makes a difference in my life. So I found another book, and this was written by a Japanese Zen master. And in this book, he went into great detail about bamboo breathing. Now, I had never heard about bamboo breathing before, and apparently it's something that he made up, the word anyway, bamboo breathing, and it's dealing with the diaphragm and sort of modulation of the breath and creating energy by, by tensing the diaphragm against the uh, abdominal muscles, and something special happens. Okay. Okay. Now, I couldn't relate to it in the way he was speaking about it, but I could relate to it in the way I played blues harmonica. Because when you play harmonica, you oftentimes use your diaphragm in breathing. And any wind instrument, you can often use your diaphragm in breathing. So I applied my harmonica breathing technique to my meditation. And then I learned something about fire breathing. And fire breathing is this quick undulation of the abdominal cavity and you you have these like little panting things going on and and i'm going wow so there's a lot of different ways to affect the way your brain works and to keep you centered and to keep you super focused so i went into my bamboo breathing technique and 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 I counted my breath, and then I let the breath counting go, and it was just a sensation of breath. And then from the sensation of breath, I sort of went into an internal journey and the representation of breath. Now, the Vasudhi manga talks about how the breath is represented in our mind, and it uses fireflies, a thousand points of light. It uses cotton, a variety of of, of forms that could be attributed to cotton. It also, there's lava flows, just like the Kilauea volcano that's happening right now, and there's color in that, and there's all sorts of internal motion and imagery that goes on when you go deep inside your breath. These are all representing your breath, but they're internal and abstract and almost poetic. So there I was, and I'm, I'm doing a little panting, and I'm doing a little breathing through my diaphragm, and, and I'm closing my eyes, and I go from counting, which is a concept, to sensation, which is a feeling, to the representation of breath, which is an internal image or, or sense, if you will. And I realized when I went inside that the ears stopped hearing and the eyes stopped seeing and the nose stopped smelling and it, everything just sort of like closed down and didn't allow me to be distracted by the external, um, oftentimes, you know, sounds or sights or movement. So there I was. And it was probably one of the most satisfying experiences I've ever had. It's just, there was all sorts of bliss and happiness and and waves of energy going back and forth. And it was just really nice. I'm thinking, okay, I'm staying here forever. That I could hardly wait to get back to the Zendo. Because this was like free. You know, all I needed to do was sit quietly and breathe a certain way. And I was in La La Land. Okay, there I was. And I started to understand that, that all that stuff is available to everybody all the time if we start looking inside rather than outside. But most of us, when we have a question or are confused or or feel frightened, we look on the outside for the answer and not on the inside. And so this Buddhist meditation stuff was showing me that the real answer, the true answer, is always on the inside. The relative... Everyday answer is on the outside, and it surely is temporary, if even that. Okay, so so for a couple more years, I went from counting breaths to having these wonderful sensations of jhana. And then I realized I was expending a whole lot of energy to get to this place of bliss and happiness and rapture, that I was so focused and so energetic in my approach to it, that I was exhausted afterwards, that I could meditate for 45 minutes or maybe an hour, maybe sometimes even an hour and a half, but I was just wasted because I had spent all this energy to get to that internal place and to stay there. And I said, I don't know, as I get older, if I'm going to be able to bring enough energy to the meditation hall to continue to go in this direction. Is there anything else? Is there another way to meditate that doesn't take as much strength and energy, but still the focus? So I continued to read, and I found something about Shikintasa, Japanese Zen, just sitting. And I thought to myself, well, now that sounds like I could do that my whole life, just sitting. And literally, it's just sitting and not having any technique at all, but simply an awareness. And when stuff arises, you let it arise, and when stuff goes away, you let it go away. And the idea is you try not to form a lot of concepts or understanding about what you experience or feeling or hearing or smelling or tasting. You're simply letting it arise and letting it go. But it's hard not to have the concepts connected to the sense door experience. So in this neighborhood, every day, every night, we have helicopters flying over. And pretty soon you get to to know by sound what kind of helicopter it is. Sheriff's helicopter, police helicopter, ambulance helicopter, coast guard helicopter. We got those. I don't know where they're coming from or why they're here, but I see them going over. And I'm going, okay, so now I'm meditating, and I'm trying just to sit and not have as many concepts as I normally have. And I hear the helicopter, and now a vivid picture rises in my mind of what kind of helicopter it is. And not only is there a picture or an image of the helicopter, but now I have a story attached to that image that the helicopter is involved in a car chase with other police units and they're all going towards West Covina, and they just flew over, and I wonder if they're going to get him, and then the gong rings, and everything becomes okay. But that one sound, and that one image, and that one story just takes you away in this sort of fantasy land, which, I came to understand, is what our mind does with us every day. We have so many wonderful stories and so many not so wonderful stories and we're just taken away left and right, future and past. And, and it's so hard to be centered in the present moment experience of our life because our mind much prefers the stories as compared to just the reality of a sensation. Okay, so now I'm just sitting and, and it's getting easier and easier to just be a pane of glass, a transparent pane of glass. And now all this stuff is coming at me, and I don't push it away, I don't hold on to it, and let it go through me and come out the other side. And so I'm sitting there and it's coming, going, coming, going. And this certain sense of peace appears, and it's the piece of the present moment experience, of you being in that moment without any attachments or aversions, and that is so, such a wonderful place to be. So you can't have opinions. I have a whole book full of those. Can't have opinions about anything. You, there is no right or wrong at this point. It's just simply isness, isness, just being, being in the moment. Okay. And that's pretty much what I've come to understand as a practice that I can have for the rest of my life. Something that's really hard to master. And, and sometimes I'm really good at it if anybody is ever good at meditation. And sometimes I'm not too good at it if anybody is not too good at meditation. And it's just a way of sort of evaluating how I'm doing. But of course that takes you out of the present moment and puts you into past and future. So let me talk a little bit about jhana, because I find this fascinating. And it also allows you to achieve nirvana according to Bhante Gunaratana. He wrote a wonderful book on using jhana to achieve nirvana. And that is also on my website for free download. So jhana has five characteristics. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness bliss, and equanimity. Those are the five characteristics of jhana. So imagine yourself sitting and you're counting your breath and now you're about to go into jhana and you have applied thought and sustained thought. Now applied thought means that you are are forcing your focus, your concentration on the object of meditation, applied thought. So if I'm going to count my breath... I'm taking my focus and I'm planting it right in front of my nose and I'm feeling the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. Not only do I apply it, but I hold it there. Applied thought and sustained thought. So I'm holding it there. Okay. And as I get deeper and deeper into the sensation of breath, certain things around me, certain experiences around me, start to fall away. And eventually it's just all about the breath, the sensation of breath. When that happens, I have tamed the mind enough to simply rest on the object of meditation and I no longer need applied thought and sustained thought because now the focus simply rests there on the sensation of breath. So what I've come to understand about Buddhism and Buddhist meditation is that when you are doing it right, you're getting rid of stuff. You're not gaining anything. Most of the time, we think, to make progress, we need more stuff. In Buddhism, to make progress, you need less stuff. It's the path of renunciation. So now, I have a greater sense of happiness, a greater sense of bliss, and a greater sense of equanimity, but I no longer have applied thought and sustained thought. So now, because Buddhist meditation is a path of renunciation, I have to give something up if I want to continue. And I'm deciding, well, why don't I give up my bliss? Because my bliss and my rapture in the body is very strong. And it manipulates my mind in a certain way. And it's like throwing a rock into a quiet pond in the forest. It makes all these little wavelets. And that's what bliss and rapture does to your mind. It puts all these little wavelets in your mind. So you can't be peaceful But you can be in rapture and you can be really blissful, but you see that now as an obstacle rather than a fruit of your practice. Okay, so how do you get rid of bliss and rapture if the body is producing that? And I came to the conclusion that you can't get rid of it. It's it's a byproduct of having a body and a mind and going into deep states of focus and tranquility but what you can give up is your attachment to the bliss and the rapture so now your job is to give up the attachment stop holding on to it even if it feels so good and you never want it to end you got to stop holding on to it and when you figure out how to do that the bliss and the rapture and your attachment to it go away and now you're left with only two factors Happiness and equanimity. Now, bliss is like throwing a rock into a quiet forest pond. Happiness is like throwing a pebble into a quiet forest pond. So, you still have these little teeny wavelets. You see, it still disturbs the mind, the peacefulness of the mind. And now you have to figure out how to give up your attachment to happiness. You've become a person. renunciation. You become a mendicant. You're simply resting in the present moment with as few attachments as possible and with as few aversions as possible. Now it might sound rather one-sided when I say give up your happiness, your attachment to it, and give up your attachment to bliss and rapture, but if you can do that you're also giving up the other side. So the other side of bliss and rapture is pain. The other side of happiness is unhappiness. So you're giving those up as well and coming to the place in the middle with no happiness and no unhappiness, with no pain and with no pleasure. The middle path. Wow, okay. So we're making progress now. And finally, the attachment to happiness is released And now you have one characteristic left, equanimity, perfect balance of mind, always in the middle, no opinions, no attachments, no aversions, the ultimate peace that the Buddha talked about. And you got there not because of nirvana, but because of your meditation practice and the five jhanas, which means if there was a beginning, there is an end. So it goes away. Every time somebody rings the gong and your meditation is over, that goes away too. And you're right back in the thick of things. Attachment, aversion, happiness, unhappiness, pain and pleasure. Oh my gosh, let's go back to the Zendo. I want to do some more meditation. I don't like this. But you start to see what the end game is of Buddhism by using this as your meditation practice. And it's a little different than Vipassana for sure. But it's, the Buddha did both. If you read what the Buddha did, he did both Samatha and Vipassana, tranquility and insight. And he was taught how to do tranquility meditation by the yogis of India. And he rediscovered Vipassana meditation, which the other Buddhas had found and used to achieve their nirvana, and then took that with them when they died. And he rediscovered that. So he was able to go into deep states of jhana to, to anesthetize any pain or unhappiness that he might have had. And then he was able to go into Vipassana meditation. And the four characteristics of Vipassana meditation are uh, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects, mindfulness of sensations. He was able to use those four characteristics of vipassana meditation and the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, impermanence, suffering, and that self, to find his full liberation and freedom from suffering. But what I think is fascinating, if you continue to read the story of the Buddha even after his nirvana, he continued to practice meditation until the day he died. And when he was dying from the food poisoning, we think that he got, we're not sure about the word, it could be food poisoning, it could be mushrooms, it could be bad pork, but he was dying nonetheless. What did he do? He went into the fourth jhana and died in the fourth jhana. So if you can figure out or find the idea of Janic practice as being useful, you can use it to find the middle in any circumstance you find yourself in. It's a way of going to the same place the Buddha did when he died. Perfect balance, perfect equanimity, no pain, no pleasure, no happiness, no unhappiness. It doesn't necessarily call out to most Americans to get there. We'd much rather have a roller coaster ride of great highs and great lows. But when you start to get old... Uh, the roller coaster ride starts to get old too you know and you just really don't want those high highs and low lows anymore you just want a sort of that stable not too jarring ride through life that has been promised to you in buddhism and buddhist meditation in particular so that's how i look at meditation from my own personal experience i'm still doing just sitting I I don't go into John anymore and go to those deep states of bliss and happiness and tranquility. It's just so much energy that I much prefer being in a place that's balanced. And I can take that with me into the world. I can go into those places of pure awareness into the world and be unaffected. So I've given up trying to change the world. I'm still working on changing myself.